And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf on episode 3672 of the Coot Street We're back two, two weeks, two weeks in a row. Two we've weeks in now. a After row. Two weeks. My goodness, we're, go- we're running out of things to talk about, clearly. I got nothing to talk um, about. That was good. Well, in fact, from now on, all the podcasts here on will simply be this. A quick greeting and then a farewell. There are a lot of people who would look forward to that and appreciate it, and we would probably get <laughs> fan mail for that. Uh-uh. I can see wisdom in it. Certainly everybody who hates the audio mixing on the podcast would be happy. Well, meanwhile... Um, <laughs> hey, we were, I was well, told the, the, by one audio engineer, why don't you just stop? Well, that's probably a good plan, and uh, we're... we're, we're comp- this is this is this is a, not a good way to start. We're okay, starting. Anyway. Hello, uh, greetings. Our second pod, uh, greetings are second podcast of the 2020s, um, and uh, several people have pointed out. Uh, this is one of the things that I haven't looked into, and I'm not prepared to talk about it at all. But there was an anthology called 2020 back in 1980 or something like that. People are now digging up what did science fiction of the 80s and 90s say about 2020. Um, and just like when the year 2000 hit, people were digging out the old Harry Harrison anthology of the year 2000. And so I looked at some of the stuff, and I dis- I discovered none of it matters. <laughs> Future dates don't mean anything in science fiction. You know, by Ray- Bradbury had us landing on Mars by 1997 or something. Yes. So the fact that it's 2020, in science fiction terms, outside of the fact that it's, uh, a, I suppose, a centennial of classic works like R.U.R. and the centennial of uh, major writers. I'm trying to think who... Uh, is this is an Asimov a, centennial, maybe? Or? Asimov centennial was last week, yeah. Um, but in terms of the fiction, in terms of what 2020 ought to be according to science fiction, my conclusion is that's not an interesting question at all. No. Um, no, I mean, you only have to look at... I mean, it's 2020, and it's the year after... Ridley Scott's Blade Runner was set. It's mm. what twenty years after, nineteen years after two thousand and one, and the monolith hasn't shown up. Right. It, it's you know thirty six years after nineteen eighty four. Okay, that showed up. Yeah, that kind of did. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we just have to have, give it time. You know, it could be. That's a depressing thought. Oh, good. Anyway, continue. Yeah, yeah. Well, somebody once uh, calculated, somebody did a study or, 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 or an observation of how writers choose future dates. Um, in other words, there are writers who choose a specific future date, 2001, for example, looking backward from the year 2000 by Edward Bellamy. Another way of writing the future is to simply say, okay, 100 years from now. Uh, so if you're writing something in 1956, you write about 2056. Um Another is to simply code in your own date. 1984 is simply like 1948 reversed. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, so, so there are all kinds of ways of coming up with dates, almost none of which have to do with actual extrapolation of what technology or society or the environment will look like at that date. So in other words, science fiction dates have always been and remain meaningless. Oh, of course. I mean, to t- again, to, t- to take the Ridley Scott example, I don't think anyone in 1982 – when Blade Runner came out, really thought that in 2019, which was only whatever it was, 36 or 37 years later or something, that we would yep. have had 
you know, attack ships on fire off the arms of Orion or something. You know, we weren't going to be engaged in interstellar travel within 40 years. That was nonsensical. But it was a art, an artistic statement about, about sometime in the future. So, yeah. Well, I think the other thing that works in something like Blade Runner and certainly worked with uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, I, I don't think that uh, Ridley Scott or Scott talking about those works 30 and 40 years later and still remaking them and still turning attack ships on fire into a globally cultural meme about uh, about space tragedies and so forth. So the fact that uh, the films have lasted in some ways is more important than, than what they had to say about the future. And as I pointed out before, one of the things that – if you go back and look at these films from the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s um, – it's it's uh, it's amusing to see what they got wrong. It's amusing that even the most forward-thinking uh, writers of, of writers and filmmakers of the era still had you know Pan Am liners going to the moon. Uh, still had uh, corporations lasting much longer than they lasted in the real world, and um, and at, at, at the same time, um, the, the technology. Uh, you, you, it's easy to pick out the fact that they missed cell phones. The fact that uh, I was, I, the reason I'm mentioning this is because I watched 2001 recently again. The guy makes a, a, a video phone call to his daughter on the Bell system and has to pay for it in credits. Um, so it's easy to pick out what they missed. And one of the things that, that I think um, does resonate is when they get something right, we overrate that. The fact that, you know, the kind of rainy, drizzly, the kind of weather we have, uh, which isn't necessarily associated with global warming and Blade Runner, but it looks more like today's weather than than we expected it to. Of course. And, and you know, I was talking to uh, my wife Marianne about science fiction prediction, and uh, you know, I made this uh, comment in the introduction to my year's best, that science fiction is kind of lousy at prediction. And she went, well, what about, you know, how can you say that? Well, what, what about, you know, Arthur C. Clarke and the satellite? And you're going, Yep, name a second one, you know. It's mm. like even a broken clock's, you know, right twice a day. Science fiction isn't about being right about the future. It's about commenting on the present. And well, the thing is, commenting, about the present. commenting on the present uh, does say something about the future. And I think one of the problems with science, one of the problems with the way science fiction is popularly received is that you don't know in a given science fiction work what is going to be important, what you ought to be acting on as you see that film, and what you ought not to be acting on. I'll give you an example that I just, again, rewatched not long ago. And I don't know why. It's because they have this thing here in the States called Turner Classic Movies, and they will just show anything. You know, so so I'm, I'm watching, you know, Beach Party, and then next, and Soylent Green comes on. Okay, Soylent Green is interesting. Uh, it's a Harry Harrison novel. It's a dis- badly distorted version of a Harry Harrison novel. Harry Harrison didn't have us eating people, the whole soil and green is people thing. But the overpopulation thing is not something we're worried about much uh, these days, not like we were in the 70s. We don't talk about it in the United States as much. But there's also a line in the film where Edward G. Robinson uh, coming in soaked with sweat to this unair-conditioned walk-up flat in New York City, and he says, it's that damned greenhouse effect. Now, as far as I know, this may be the first fictional film to use the term greenhouse effect. Yeah. And greenhouse effect itself is now a kind of obsolete and not quite yeah. accurate term. Nevertheless, 
looking at that film today and thinking, okay, crowds of people living on stairways in New York, that's not the problem. Global warming, that's what the film was talking about also, and how do we know which of those two things we're supposed to pay attention to? True. Having said all that, that isn't what we're gathered here to talk about today. No, that's not our topic today at all. Because last week we kicked off with our year in review episode, which happens round and about late December, early January every year. And as you Mm -hmm. pointed out to me, the other episode we tend to do is books we are looking forward to for the coming year or shopping lists for readers part one. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I can start that with a couple of the books I've already seen. One of the, one of the books we haven't – we may yet talk about this at length, but I guess uh, William Gibson's agency is already out as we speak or is coming out it's right about out, now. I think, this coming week, yeah. Yeah, okay, uh, which is, of course, the sequel to The Peripheral and is, um, I think, a pretty well, – he, 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 let, me, let me put it this way. I think over the years, as Gibson has become a better novelist of the contemporary world, he may have become less interesting as a science fiction writer. His idea of science fiction is what's happening now. And I, he's virtually said things like this, that trying to deal with uh, the recent past, trying to figure out what's actually happening, is more challenging than trying to guess 40 or 50 years from now. So so he's gotten most, closer and closer to the present. And the th- reason I mentioned the science fiction not working as well, the one science fiction device which he uses in the peripheral and in agency, which I think is very uncharacteristic, is the idea of uh, multiple time streams and manipulating the past from the future. That's It's an old science fiction idea, but it's not a William Gibson-style idea. Well, it's certainly not what we immediately associate with Gibson. I mean, Gibson, we, you know, the... Most famous work remains the Sprawl trilogy and Neuromancer, and so that mm-hmm. kind of uh, noir thriller with a patina of kind of tech support poetry is kind of what what you expect. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I've not. I mean, I'll be honest; I've not read the book because I've been buried in my years best. Yeah, of course. But in terms of looking forward to it, it's equally on on it's on my list. Obviously, you're not looking forward to it; you're already looking back. But all of the talk about it is really promising. And it's very it sounds like it's going to be an essential book, though it probably won't be on science fiction awards ballots next year. Um, I think you're probably right. Um, okay, let me throw out another title, mm-hmm. which I think will almost inevitably be on awards ballots next year. And at this point, I'm going to very quickly run out of 2020 books that I've already read. But one of the most high-profile books coming out, I believe, in March is N.K. Jemison's The City We Became. Uh, which we had a preview of in her uh, story collection, How Long to Black Future Month. There was a story called... Uh, the City the Not Long After or something like that, the which City came Not out on about three or four years ago. Yeah, Right. Um, and that essentially is very close to being the first chapter of the novel. It's not like the other Nora Jemison things. This is why I'm really anxious to see the reactions to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's partly... A love letter to New York City. Mm-hmm. Partly it's Lovecraftian horror. Partly it's character-based comedy of manners. There's some wonderful characters in it. And I'm trying to figure out how does this fit in with the Broken Earth trilogy, for example, or the 100,000 Kingdoms and that sort of thing. And here's an odd thought, which people can puzzle over after they read the novel. 
my sense is that this novel, which is the beginning of a new trilogy, um, the conceit of the novel is that when cities reach a certain kind of cultural organic tipping point, they become living entities. And as that happens, uh, they, I, some, some avatar is identified to kind of represent and control the city. But there is this hideous unseen force that wants to use that moment of vulnerability to take over the cities. Uh, it's happened to Sao Paulo. It's happened, and in this novel, it happens to New York. So there's there's supernatural horror in it. There's urban comedy in it. There's social satire in it. There's stuff in it about how you fund nonprofit organizations. Um, but it's not an epic uh, in the sense. It's a much more end of a novel. It's not an epic in the sense of her more familiar novels. So here's my odd thought. I think this new novel, or possibly the new trilogy, is going to stand in relation to Jemison's other work, more or less as the lathe of heaven stands to Le Guin's other work. Le Guin was... Go ahead. I was going to say, I can't comment not having read the book. Okay. Let me make my point about Le Guin, though. Le Guin was well into her Hainish novels. She had published The Left Hand of Darkness. She had published The Wizard of Earthsea. Her most famous series were ongoing. When she drops this novel in called The Lathe of Heaven, which is a wonderful novel and not like anything else she was doing at the time. Some of the same issues are there, obviously. Some of the same concerns, the idea of power, the idea of responsibility, the idea of of choices, um, the idea of dreams, I suppose. And, and I think what's going on with with, uh, with with Jemison is something similar. She's showing us that she can do something very different, exploring her favorite themes in a way that is meant, I'm pretty sure, to surprise her readers. And I think it will, and I think people are going to be delighted by it. I think you're probably right. So, okay, we've got two books that, we're, we're, we, are lo- that we, we are both looking forward to. Well, I'm looking forward uh-huh. to and you're looking back on. Right. Uh, do you have anything else or do you want me to go next? Okay, I'm going to finish up all the books I've already read, and then we're in the same territory. The third novel, which I just finished, uh, is another writer who's had a strange and checkered career, I guess, at least in the States, and that's Paul McCauley's. Mm-hmm. War of the Maps is it's, it's what I have come to think of as the kind of Vancean, Wolfian version of Macaulay. Because Macaulay had written what I thought was one of the really finest solar system generational dramas in the Quiet War series. Um, he'd written a series of thrillers and he'd written uh, in his previous Vancey and Wolfian mode, the, seri- the Confluence series of novels. Um, and this is, this is more like the Confluence novels than anything else. It's, it's a novel called War of the Maps, which takes place on a, apparently on the exterior of a Dyson sphere constructed around a white dwarf star. And hmm. and you spend the first 50 or 60 pages saying, why are these people living on the outside of a Dyson sphere? Didn't they read the manual? I mean, <laughs> didn't they figure out what these things are for? And this gets explained as it goes along. But it's, it's, it's a really large-scale quest narrative that has a science fiction underpinning and, and reads a lot like epic fantasy. And again, is, uh, is one of those things where the reason I, I say Wolfian and I'm referring to Gene Wolfe, obviously, yep, yeah. is that it's it's constructed in in the same way of really headlong adventures, but hints and uh, 
and, and clues about the nature of the world are dropped as you go along, and gradually these pieces fall into place. Um, and, and, and I think that's, that's what makes the novel satisfying for a science fiction reader. I'm, some, I'm thinking somebody who's reading it as fantasy is probably going to wonder, why, why are all these explanatory paragraphs here? Because this, we're just having fun. I think it works. I think it's um, probably as successful as his Confluence trilogy in doing this kind of thing. Um, but as I say, he's he's a writer who probably has suffered from his own versatility. He's written so many different kinds of things that I don't think in the in the eyes of American readers, there's not one Paul Macaulay thing that you can look at. You know there'll be biological sophistication behind everything he writes. Um, but that's not enough to describe the way the narrative works. No, and I, I loved Antarctica or whatever it was, yeah, the most recent one. Uh, Austral. Austral, sorry, which was great. Uh, no. Okay, other books to look forward to. Okay, I'm Your looking turn. forward to Deepa Anapara's debut. Uh, Deepa Anapara is an Anglo-Indian journalist and has a book uh-huh. coming out shortly called Gin Patrol on the Purple Line, which mm. is the story of a bunch of street kids who go missing in an Indian slum. And a nine-year-old investigator who goes searching down the Purple Line, which is a, a railway line, in search of what's happened to these missing kids. Mm. Uh, and there's rumors of gin around and all this kind of thing. And it sounds really intriguing and it's got great advanced you know, word. I've not seen the book yet. It only comes out shortly and I'm not in the cycle where I'm going to actually get my hands on a copy until it comes out. But I'm really looking forward to that. That one sounds really interesting. Do we know where it's coming out? Chateau and Windus in the UK, but it's, it's okay. coming out in the UK and the US simultaneously pretty much okay, within a yes. couple of weeks. I think it's about February, March. So that's coming out. Um, I'm also looking forward to Patrick Ness's next YA title, Burn. Now, Patrick hmm. Ness is best known for the Chaos Walking trilogy. You know, The Knife of Never Letting Go, those yeah, books. Right. And also for having been the writer showrunner on the Doctor Who spin-off TV show, Class. So he's got a novel set in 1950s America, which is interesting for a American, British writer, uh, mm. where dragons are real. And it's a very kind of gritty kind of lower class look, apparently, at sort of the U.S. at that time from that perspective. So I'm really looking forward to that. That sounds fascinating. And that's around the same kind of a time. Mm-hmm. Speaking of people who are YA writers, and this is some I, – I have, I have a scribbled list here, and I may or may not have it. But I believe there's a new Francis Harding novel coming out, it's out. this year. Buddy. Well, it's out. It's out came out, came okay. out in the UK yeah. last year. You're talking oh, about okay. uh, Deep Light, I think, is it, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Came out October, September, October. It's well, on our recommended uh, reading list. Uh, well, I, I'll, I'll take our recommended reading list to heart. Well, here's one of the things. One of the things that comes up when we start talking about books we're looking forward to is some of these books are out in the UK. We're out in the UK last year, but we're looking forward to them this year. Some of them we're looking forward to. I'm not sure which of them are going to be available in the United States at any time. I, I don't think the Paul McCauley novel is scheduled to be published in the US. Um, well, I may be wrong about that. We'll but, post a uh, list of these books and people can search for them. It's the 21st century, Gary. Online shopping has killed your local shopping mall, but made everything available nonetheless. Mm-hmm. It's okay. What else are you looking forward to? Okay, let me list what I think is going to be one of the big news items. I think it's later in the year. Is the new Susanna Clark novel, Piranesi, uh, which from the advanced description of it, 
looks to my relief nothing like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. She wanted to rec- – it, it looks like it has all the density and all the richness and all the uh, elusiveness of that novel in a completely different context. And uh, I'm really glad – and I know it's been difficult for her. It's been years of working on something. I'm glad she's doing something which is different because if it's as different from Jonathan Strange as Mr. Norrell, as Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell was from everything else, it's going to be dynamite. Could well be. I mean, it's definitely on my list, and I'm definitely looking forward to it. And I'm pleased that it was one of two books that she sold sold at the same time. And apparently, mm-hmm. you know, the, her next novel, Beyond Piranesi, which seems greedy to even talk about, isn't very far away. I'm also looking forward, Gary, to David Mitchell's new book, which is coming out in mid-year, yes. Utopia Avenue, which is all about drugs, sex, madness, the psychedelic 60s, and all that kind of thing. And being Mitchell will probably be genre and fascinating and interesting and complex and chewy and terrific. Okay. Yep. Uh, The description of that, I couldn't tell how speculative it was going to be. I mean, it deals with 60s rock culture largely, doesn't it? I think so, but I think there's there's a speculative element, but honestly, even if there's not, who cares? Even if there's not, who cares, yeah. This, Um, This is, after all, books we're looking forward to, not necessarily just genre books okay let me let me name one uh that i'm really looking forward to based on having read maybe two short stories by this author and this is how jin fang's novel vagabonds which i gather is another translation by ken lu who is astonishingly prolific but also very good uh i believe she had written a short story called folding beijing which was one of the more striking stories uh, to come out of the sort of newly translated renaissance of Chinese science fiction. And based on that and based on what I've read about this, it, it, it looks like possibly the next major Chinese science fiction novel that isn't really part of the uh, three-body problem orbit. Yeah. Definitely on my list. It's coming from Sagar. I think you should already have an arc of it with a bit of luck or it's on its way to you. Oh, good. I hope so. Um The next one that I'm looking forward to is a guy who's kind of chipping out a space for himself was almost like a modern Philip K. Dick in in an odd way. And that's Uh Levi Tidhar. Oh, yeah. Levi Tidhar has an enormous Arthurian fantasy novel by Force Alone coming out in March where Arthur is basically an overproded gangster. Shady arms deals have been made with watery arms dealers. There's aliens, radioactive blight, and all kinds of oddities. And the nature of Arthurian Britain is laid bare. Now, Tidhar never does anything that's straightforward, but he always does something that's interesting. And it strikes me that he's been getting better and better and better. And this book is coming out from Head of Zeus in the UK and Tor in the US, pretty close to simultaneously and it sounds really terrific i can't wait to read it i'll be fascinated by it because i think uh, uh, it, it, you're right it's very difficult to figure out what tidar is up to but one of the things he's up to yeah. is looking at different modes of storytelling looking at different traditions of storytelling so for example uh he he looks at he knows things like Yiddish pulp fiction uh, or Israeli pulp fiction Mm -hmm. that nobody else knows about. And uh, A Man Lies Dreaming is drawing on pulp, uh, uh, his world fantasy award-winning novel. um, Osama. Okay. 
Osama. He, so so he's he's paying attention to like paperback pulp fiction, uh, cheap pulp fiction, the violent century. He was dealing with superhero comics, basically. Uh, he's he's looking at all different modes of writing, and so it doesn't surprise me in a sense that Arthurian, the matter of Arthur, to some extent, would be another storytelling tradition that he would wade into and no doubt do something really original with. Um, and he also, by the way, we should mention that the Central Station stories are a tribute to classic science fiction. To yeah, large. very much. Uh, yes. He, he certainly knows that as well. Absolutely true. Okay. Um, let me... Um, hmm. Well, okay, there's there's a new Jeff Ford novel coming out. Is there? Um, it's called Out of Body. It's a I novella. I think it's a thriller. It's part of the novella. novella program. Oh, it's a novella. Okay, I didn't know there was a novella. That doesn't well, okay, mark it's a it new down. Jeff- it's still cool. It's still a new Jeff Ford. Yes. Uh, Jeffrey Ford. So uh, so let me, uh, let me let me add another one to that uh, then since it's uh, the third in the series. And I'm not somebody who reads trilogies. I don't usually look forward to the third volume of a trilogy. And when I look forward if, – if I do look forward to the third volume of a trilogy – it's usually only because it's the third volume and the trilogy will be over. But I'm actually looking forward to Ken Lose the Veiled Throne, the third Dandelion Dynasty novel, uh, because he's done something different. He did something different in the first novel than he did in the second novel, and he's been working on this a long time. I think it's going to be – I think it will be full of surprises, and it's going to be big. It's going to be huge, but – so seldom do third volumes of trilogies have genuine surprises in them that I'll be disappointed if I'm not surprised. Oh, I think you'll be surprised. I think you'll be quite surprised. Okay, so <laughs> next book we're looking forward to. Back in 2014, Sarah Monette wrote a fantasy novel under the, the nom de plume, because it wasn't really a secret pseudonym of Catherine Addison, a book uh-huh. called The Goblin Emperor, which went on to be nominated for the Hugo, the Nebula, yes. the World Fantasy. Terrific book. And was promptly followed by nothing at all. Well, now, five years later, The Angel of the Crows, which is an unrelated original fantasy novel set in an alternate 1880s novel, London, where killers stalk the night and the ultimate power is naming, is coming out mid-year. And I am looking forward to it hugely. I love The Goblin Emperor. It was a great book. And The Angel of the Crows sounds equally interesting. Okay, that's something I did not know about. Mm-hmm. Should, because yeah, you're right. We we considered the uh, Catherine Addison, the, the Addison novel for the Crawford Award at the same time. Uh, what do you know? This is something. Uh, this is something I picked out of the Locus uh, forthcoming books list as a subterranean title from Greg Egan called Dispersion. Novella. That's all I know about it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so but it's still it's like I said with Jeff Ford. It's a new Greg Egan. Well, well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Greg has delivered, written probably three, four, four good long uh-huh. novellas for Bill Schaefer at Subterranean Press over the years. And yeah, any new one is hugely welcome. Well, let me mention one that I know is a novella then, and I know you're involved with it, and that's Ale- Alexander Irving's Anthropocene Rag. Anthropocene Rag. Great story. Lots and, it, and lots it, of fun. I, I've not seen it yet, but it, it, again, here's a writer who had an, an, an enormously a big splash, uh, but scattering of jades with his first novel, and has written consistently interesting novels since then. I'm glad to see him back in the game. Huckleberry Finn meets uh, meets Philip K. Dick in a post oh what nanotech flooded world where a 
a, a carnival barker basically hands out half a dozen gold tickets to go to a mystical city. Oh, he's just doing that again, is he? <laughs> just that again. Uh, yeah, the interesting right. thing is, if you're a long-time reader of Alexander Irvine, and, or Alex Irvine, and you're wondering how this all fits together, I started reading, as you did, Gary, uh, Alex, back around when A Scattering of Jades came out, right? Uh-huh. Which was his debut, and was fabulous. And he's written a lot of good stuff, and he's written a lot of um, uh, IP-related work as well. Mm. This book actually began back when, when he first started back when he was writing Scattering of Jades around the same time. And so it's been around a long time and it's oh, really? come out okay. really well. I'm, I mean, I am totally biased about it because obviously, well, not obviously I am the acquiring editor for it. So yeah. Yes. Next for me, it's the 21st century. We love gender swapping, Gary. We gender swap everything. So now we're going to gender swap Alexander the Great. And you need uh-huh. scale for the story of Alexander the Great. So we're going to make it a space opera. So it's a gender-swapped Alexander the Great space opera. Kate Elliott's Unconquerable Sun is coming out in mid-year. And it sounds like a barrel full of fun. Elliott's actually a really strong writer who doesn't get the credit she deserves from mm-hmm. critics and reviewers too often. And this new series sounds pretty darn essential. Sounds great. Sounds huge fun. Sounds wonderful, yeah. Um, okay, let me um, throw out one which, again, I know about mostly from having seen him tweet about it. Apparently, there's a new M. John Harrison novel called The Sunken Land Begins to Rise, again. which sounds utterly fascinating. Uh, Harrison is getting, I think, more intriguing and more um original than he's ever been and he's always been one of the most original minds out there and um i just have the fact that i have no idea what to expect from a writer is always good news to me i don't know what it's going to look like i looked at his um you know recent story collection uh his classic novels like light are still among the most influential among other writers that i know at least in the uk and this looks like something it'll be a lot of fun I think fun's a very, very interesting word to use for a Mike Harrison novel. Uh, if you read, you you should go, you should come with me now, which is the comma press collection you're talking about. There are a couple Uh of stories in there that feature a character called Shaw and they're set in around the British Midlands. They, uh, that's, they're the basis for the sunken land begins to rise again. So it's near future. I think it's a kind of Mike Harrison-esque wor- like urban fantasy kind of thing in Britain. I'm not 100% sure. I know that basically we're going to get two Mike Harrison books in 2020. We're going to get The Sunken Land Begins to Rise Again and Comma oh. Press will be publishing a best of his short fiction. One of four or five me- you know, really strong best of short, best ofs that are coming out this year. Yeah. Well, let me explain what I mean by fun. Uh, there are different kinds of fun. There, there's the fun, the, the kind of fun that we can expect from the Kate Elliott novels, for example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's the kind of fun that comes from unpacking something which is very cleverly packed and finding things in it you didn't expect. Um, that happened. Some of that happened with the Paul McCauley novel. I was thinking. It always happens with with Mike Harrison, with and, and it happens with Gene Wolfe. And we should probably mention that what unfortunately will, I'm fairly certain, be the last Gene Wolfe novel. Yeah. Um, is also coming out this year, the sequel to The Borrowed Man called Interlibrary Loan. 
And this was pretty much done. I talked to him over a year before his death, and it was pretty much done by then. So yeah. I think, I think it's. But but Gene Wolfe was one of those writers where it's 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 not it's not going to be like V.C. Andrews. People are not going to go in and be able to finish Gene Wolfe novels from from fragments. The next one that I'm looking forward to is one that I had no idea existed before the day before yesterday. Joe Walton, uh-huh. who over the years has proven herself to be a genuinely original and uh, varied writer, I think it's fair to say, yeah. has a book coming out called Or What You Will. It's coming out in July. It's, a, fa- it, yes. yeah, it's a fantasy novel, and it appears to be about the spark that forms characters in her in a 73-year-old novelist's mind when she writes. And it's how mm. this character, this spark, is trying to find a way to survive her coming and inevitable demise. And it sounds kind of fascinating and weird. Well, it looks to me like, uh, I read the same description you did, it looks like she's returning to – she's been writing historical philosophical novels, which are fascinating in their own way. But the, the kind of discussion of the meaning of fantasy and what it does for you that began with Among Others especially, I, I think she's getting back to this question of the roots of fantasy, what makes fantasy work, what, what causes fantasy to be created. And those are questions that she deals with actually in her – Nonfiction essays as yeah. well. So yeah. every every time I see something by Joe Walton that's going to be about fiction or about fantasy, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, I'm fascinated by mm-hmm. it because she has extremely original take on these. Um, let me mention an, a, a writer uh, who I think has an, maybe a novella and a novel coming up, but the mm-hmm. uh, the, the grandmaster Nancy Cress, who again has consistently written. Uh, fascinating original fiction and she's got uh, I've got a copy over here of Sea Change there's also apparently a novel called The 11th Gate yeah, which I've already, not seen yes we've uh, there's a review of Sea Change in the late, the, the next issue of Locus from uh, oh, okay. Russell Letson uh, okay. so not one we need a second review of um, and yes the other book's coming from Bain I think yeah you have another list? There's a Yoon Ha Lee novel coming out. There is, yes, a, a new fantasy novel called Phoenix Ascendant, which is coming from uh, from uh, Solaris, Phoenix. which sounds interesting. Phoenix Extravagant. I think it's Phoenix Extravagant. Yeah. And everything that Yoon writes is interesting. Right. I mentioned that there are three or four major best ofs coming out, as seems to be the trend. Mm. Someday, actually, I'd love to see a definitive list of the best of books that Subterranean Press have published over the years. They're kicking off the year with a Best of Elizabeth Bear. Mm -hmm. And as you know, uh, Bear is already my pick for the having had the best writing year or publishing year last year of just about anybody and has proven herself over her 20-year career or whatever it is since the Jenny Casey books came out as being a talented, thoughtful, varied writer. And so it's a really big, major book and one worth worth picking up uh what other bests of are coming out this year you will see that there is a well ps publishing have a best of jeffrey ford that was due at the end of last year but has rolled into this year it features i think 
two and a half dozen of Jeff's best stories, all illustrated by his son, Derek, and mm-hmm. undeniably will be essential. I hope that that it's more widely available as well, because, as I think all these books should be. And the other other one is um, one coming out towards the end of the year, which will be a best of Walter John Williams. Another big 200,000 ah, yes. word best of, which will be a rich, varied thing because Walter has written some really fabulous, fabulous short fiction over the years. And again, all over the map in terms of genres and, uh, and, and so forth and so on. <laughs> and one, I suppose one collection that, that, that we ought to mention, even though it's technically not a best of, but it's Ken Liu's second collection of short stories. That's right. Yes. Uh, which is, which in a way is the best of because, he, okay, he's, He's, he's very selective. He was very selective in his first collection. The second collection, I noticed, contains many stories which predate the first collection. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because he says in the introduction, this is an interesting thing to think about, um, that the, the, the first collection of stories, you're trying to represent yourself to the world. This is who I am. This is what I can do and so forth and so on. And in the introduction, he says the pressure is off. When you have a second collection of stories, you can just pick the stories of your own that you like. It's no longer a presentation piece. It's no longer an audition. It's uh, and and as a result, um, he's put in his own favorite stories, and they're a lot of fun. They they connect in interesting ways. Um, and it's too soon to see a best of Ken Liu, but between these two collections, we pretty much do have the best of Ken Liu. Well, we certainly have a selection, but I mean, he's published a lot of short stories, Gary. Uh, probably yes. the most impressive, in fact, there are many things that are very, very impressive about Ken Liu as a writer. His flexibility, his mm-hmm. talent, his ability to tell story, his prolificness is somewhat overwhelming when you consider that he will have, well, two books of his own fiction out in this, this, this year, along with at least one, uh, book of translated work yeah and the translation is a long novel it's like 600 pages long or something he is a very very prolific man and i mean he wrote a story that's in my dragon book in the, mm-hmm. in the you know which is one of the best things i think he's ever written and that these days is is, is saying something right well you've already mentioned it uh, so i can i can now take the privilege of being a coast and saying two anthologies I'm looking forward to. One of Actually, I have them here. I got my copy of the Dragon Book. But I can tell right away that the authors who receive copies, this is clearly going to be a big, gorgeous book. And the the arc is very attractive and the internal illustration. But I can, I can imagine this is going to be an oversized book, isn't it? It's going to be big. And, it, it, uh, it will be nearly 600 pages long, I think, yeah. No, I, I, I'm talking about the physical dimensions of it. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be a pretty book. I mean, the thing I'd yeah. say about the art that you've seen is the cover on the arc is the final. It's by Ravina Kai and is wonderful. But it's wonderful. all of the art inside the book right now are just placeholder sketches for the final art. They're not the actual final art. Oh, they are. Okay. Yeah, so uh, it's going to be even okay. more impressive, Gary. It's, it's, it's going to be a gorgeous piece of work, and, it's, uh, and, and everybody's in it. I've, I've not read any of the stories in it. You've read all of them. So you have an advantage. I have, I other, have read overwhelmingly, certainly yeah, right. a good, a good chunk of them, Gary. Yeah, it's, 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 it's always a good idea to read. Oh, the, the real secret comes out. You don't have to read all this. A, a representative sample. No, no. A representative I, I, I've sample. read them all several times. Well, the other, the other, the other collection of Jonathan Strong's, which I'm looking forward to, in fact, which I just finished reading, is made to order. And, uh, right, excuse me, made to order colon 
Robots and Revolution, you don't usually put colons in your anthology titles. I, I well, I, I often put subtitles on my on my books, you know, like under my hat, tales from the cauldron, that kind of thing. And so this well, is yeah. supposed to be that kind of kind of thing. Um, this is a book that I personally really, really like out of my own books, but always struggled to find quite the right title. I think Made to Order is a pretty solid uh, kind of title for it. But there's, I think, some stories that I really like by some writers who I think are really, really talented. Um, it's it's a good mix of uh, kind of experimental and, and some some fairly old fashioned fun stories. Um, that I, I it's a very enjoyable anthology. But I, I will say this now on the podcast, so I don't have to say it when I write a review of this. A title like Made to Order almost is an implicit pun, isn't it? It is a pun, yes, um, absolutely. Okay. It's, a, it's a pun. Okay, fine. So we don't have to explain what the pun is. We can just let our listeners puzzle it out for themselves. I, I, I think a book called Robots and Revolution called Made to Order probably lays itself fairly bare. Yeah, I guess we, yeah. <laughs> Either that or the book's just not going to find the market it, 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 that it deserves. So I have my fingers crossed. Well, okay, I also okay, came okay. to love the cover. It, it, I think cover worked out really well too. Um, I don't have a cover, I unfortunately. Yeah, no, no. Uh, but I'll, I'll look at it online. Okay. Uh, this is in celebration of the centennial of RUR, I presume? Yes. <laughs> yes. Basically, have, ever, hmm? have I read have RUR ever, or seen it performed? Have you ever seen it performed? I've not seen it performed. I've read it, but I've not seen it performed. Uh-huh. It's. I've seen it performed once. Mm-hmm. It's really dull. <laughs> well, I it's hope you don't really, feel the same about my book. <laughs> no, I didn't feel the same. I, I, RUR, I, I looked this up, as a matter of fact. RUR is one of those classics of science fiction that everybody knew about. Nobody had actually read. Uh, I went back and figured out uh, that, as far as I know, the first time RUR was presented to a science fiction genre audience would have been in 1954 when Groff Conklin included it in his mm-hmm. science fiction thinking machines. Yeah. And after that, it got picked up by another anthology. I think there was an Anthony Boucher anthology called The Treasury of Science Fiction. So people actually had a chance to read RUR, uh, usually in a somewhat truncated form. Yeah. Uh, it, and by the way, it was an enormously successful play. It, uh, it, was, it, was, it was being played in London and New York by 1923. So I... On stage, apparently, a cut-down version of it worked reasonably well. But the irony, of course, is that these people aren't robots at all. They're artificial people. Yeah, and so the real connection to the book is that RUR is the, wor- the work that introduced the, wor- the term robot to the English language, mm. and that's its real connection to the book. It's a book of robot stories. The other piece of trivia about RUR, which I discovered when I was researching robots and science fiction for my lecture series, is that the 1923 New York stage production featured two young actors from the Academy of Dramatic Arts. In their first stage productions, they were uh, Spencer Tracy and Pat O'Brien, both of whom went on to become major movie stars in the 30s and 40s. So RUR helped not only introduce robots to the world, but introduced Spencer Tracy, who later went on to play Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And there's some connection there that somebody will write a novel about someday. Fair enough. Another book I'm looking forward to, Gary. Michael Swanwick, who produced one of the best books of 2019 Mm -hmm. in The Iron Dragon's Mother, has a short story collection coming out in April, The Post-Utopian Adventures of Darger and Surplus. 
So yes. this is a collection of the short fiction in the Darger and Surplus sort of world. I kind of in a wish there was an omnibus of all of the you know the two novels and the stories together. Right. But this is the next best thing and looks to be terrific and it features a new Darger and Surplus novelette. To follow Excellent. the cat said meow, meow, and it wasn't the dog said bow wow, and the other stories. Yeah. Right. And as long as you mentioned uh, Swanwick, there's a collaboration with Gardner Dozois, there which is. is listed. And that apparently is a novel they began many, many years ago. Yeah, there's a novella called City of Gods uh-huh. that Gardner and Michael wrote together for the, the Century Hutchinson novella series or something, right? Uh-huh. And I remember the book reasonably clearly. Uh, apparently they'd worked on a sequel novella to that bef- before Gardner had died. And then Michael picked it up and has written it together into a novel. And, you know, finding, as he says uh, in the PR material for it, I think, you know, an unexpectedly happy ending that even Gardner couldn't have denied, even though he would have tried. Yes, that sounds exactly like both of them, in fact. Um, there are also some books that the rest of the world are looking forward to eagerly that I have, that are, that I'm looking for, well, I'm looking for, I'm going to, I'm interested in. There's going to be Harrow the Ninth, which is the second, uh, yes, book from Tamsin Muir. Uh, and mm. it'll be interesting to see how Tamsin follows up on, on the runaway success of Gideon the Ninth. And there'll also be, uh, Network Effect, which is Martha Wells's Murderbot novel, the first full-length uh-huh. novel in that set, following on from the four or five novellas that she's done for Tor.com. What can you tell me about uh, this? Again, as somebody who I've read short fiction by, um, and I probably am going to butcher the name, but it's Tochi Anyabuchi's Riot Baby. Now that's a story I've read. That one, and so oh, really? in fact, so the only reason that's not on my. Uh, list of things that I'm looking forward to is it's, th- it's on my list of things I'm looking back on. Uh-huh. It's a fascinating, it's, I mean, it's really good. It's, it, it's a, how do I describe it? Okay. It, it's a urban fantasy told from an African American viewpoint set through time, uh, structured around the major sort of race riot kind of event in the United States. Uh-huh. So it and it, one of the primary ca- characters is incarcerated for for a chunk of the of the book. The main protagonist is not it's his sister, it, and she has certain powers that 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 she, that she develops through the story. It's ve- it's passionate and powerful. Um, Tochi Anyabuchi is a terrific writer. I'd not really experienced uh, his work before middle of last year when I read War uh, War Girls. Which is a YA novel that he had out, and Riot Baby's well, great, know, and also he's got a story in my in my robot book. Well, that's that, that's what made me interested in, in 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 Riot Baby because he has this story called the Hurt Pattern, which is one of the most powerful stories there. Which resonates. I, I I know nothing about Anya Butch, but this story resonates a lot with uh, with what's happening in Chicago in the relationship between. The, Police and the black community and and uh, the uh, mass incarceration issues. This is somebody who's very much on top of contemporary issues and manages to turn them into science fiction, which goes back to a point I've made before on the podcast. Uh, the reason for reading anthologies like Made to Order or like The Dragon or like any original anthologies, you're finding authors then that you want to find novels by, uh, that you want to know more about these people. You want to discover. Uh, so uh, so now. 
This is a good example, uh, as good an example as I can think of. I read the first short story ever by this author, discover that there's a novel, mention the novel to you, and you've read the novel, and now this is a new name we need to pay attention to in the future. And this, uh, uh, the Riot Baby, which is a, a, well, what was, used to be a rare hardcover edition from Tor.com Publishing is coming out in hardcover, either was out, just come out this week, gone. And is highly recommended. Highly recommended. Also recommended since, since we are being completely, um, we're willing to recommend our own stuff and stuff that comes near, near us. Mm. I have, well, I can't recommend both because I haven't read the second, but certainly I can read, I can recommend another novella that I've worked on for Tor.com. Coming mm. later this year is The Order of the Pure Moon Reflected in Water by Zen Cho. Ah. And it is a Wuxia influenced tale of bandits and nuns and unexpected love set on the Malayan Peninsula. And it's great. It sounds like a lot of fun. Okay, here's another another one because this is somebody I've read one or two things by, and you might know more than I do, but there apparently is a novel by K.M. Sabara. Sabara? Yes, yes. That's a book which has got lots and lots of oh. recommendations that I'm never, ever, ever, ever going to read called docile it looks unnerving let me put it that way it does it looks very challenging and i hope everybody else reads it but i just don't know if i want to i just it doesn't sound like of all the words that it sounds like it doesn't sound like fun and there's a review i think that liz burke has done for locus which which says lots of smart and things about it and it's widely recommended and by all means read it but this is books we're looking forward to, and I kind of feel like, like I'm not. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm including books I'm curious about and want to know more about. Uh, and, Fair and, enough. And this is certainly one of them. And I'm, I'm running out of things on my list. I've got Joe Walton on the list. We've already been there. What else have you got on your list? I guess, you know, sort of in terms of conflict of interest, since we've thrown that down the track, I've edited two more books for Tor.com that are coming out during the year. I do recommend okay. them both. There's a new novella from KJ Parker, which is coming out soon called Prosperous Demons, which uh-huh. is dark and funny and mordant. And I love it a lot. And also the third of the Black Helicopter books from Caitlin R. Kiernan, a book Excellent. called The Tenderloss Asset will come out towards the end of the year. And I like it a very great deal as well. And she, it's the the title of that suggests to me that this may be connected in some way with her Lovecraftian stories. It, well, it is, yeah. I mean, there's a trio of novellas now. There's the um, Agents of Dreamland. Uh, there's the Black Agent. Helicopters, and there's a ha- the the, the a Tindalos Asset. And all of them are well, the tri- their trio of of novellas are uh, Lovecraftian in nature. It's in their background. The original story, Black Helicopters, was written for a Lovecraftian anthology. And in fact, I read an excerpt from it that she put in her newsletter and was so mm-hmm. impressed by it that I chased it down and we put it out through, through, put out, uh, Agent of Dreamtime through the Dreamland through the, uh, tour. And it's a great book. Love the book. One of the best things I've been lucky enough to work on and I really like Tindalos Asset too and I'm, I hope though I don't know this that Caitlin may do more. Tell me another odd book that I've heard about. I don't know a, a huge amount about it mm-hmm. but 
I don't know if you recall, back in uh, about uh, 15, 20 years ago, Liz Williams popped on the scene internationally, had a bunch of uh-huh. science fiction novels out from Bantam, got caught up doing um, detective, you know, like urban fantasy detective novels for Nightshade. Right. And yeah. she has a new book coming out from Newcon Press in the UK. It's a book called Comet Weather, hmm. a tale of four phase sisters uh, set in present day London and rural uh, uh, rural Somerset. Rave reviews from Alistair Reynolds and Juliet McKenna, uh, people like that. And it sounds really good. So I'm looking forward to you know, tracking that down as as the year goes on. That sounds fascinating too. I mean, I want to go back for a moment to the Caitlin Kiernan thing, which uh, that, the the ten dollars seems to, the title seems to come from the Frank Belknap long story, The Hounds of Ten Dollars. It does absolutely yes. Um, but the the Lovecraft stuff keeps going on. I, mean, I, I mentioned that it's I don't want to say too much about the N.K. Jemison novel, but it's very it's it's explicitly Lovecraftian in in some aspects of it, and it's. Since Lovecraft has been exposed for the kind of disturbingly uh, racist and misogynist and otherwise disturbed character that he apparently was, his career is taking off in a revisionist way. In other words, getting back at Lovecraft is 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 producing more good. Is, is, there's, there's a whole new Lovecraft circle, except it's an anti-Lovecraft circle, and I think it's kind of wonderful. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's really what Caitlin's doing. Caitlin's very much Caitlin and writes what Caitlin writes. In this case, it's a, a a really powerful blend of sort of contemporary, gritty, noir detective fiction yeah, with Lovecraftiana. And I guess the thing about Lovecraft is that beyond being out of copyright, which is not unattractive, um, that there's something about the Cthulhu mythos mythos that resonates with people. Maybe it's that fear of the unknown. Maybe it's that attraction of of mystery and whatever else. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But it continues to resonate and to provide different ways to to respond to. I mean, because you're right, in the last decade, there have been a a string of major works in this space, all of which Lovecraft would have been happily appalled by. Uh, right, and, you know. and we're not just talking about genre works and no, revisionist no. So, but mainstream works like Lovecraft Country. And, well, I actually uh, you mentioned that because, of course, one thing to look forward to this year is Jordan Peele's HBO series that, that adapts Lovecraft Country, Country for the screen. That, that should be very interesting. That's yeah. one of the things. We we haven't even talked about movies. I wouldn't movies even know where to begin. I don't know where to begin with that either. Two billion television series, 12 million hours, all of them from Marvel. Yeah, there's that. Uh. <laughs> well, and that's really, I also assume, and we're almost at the end of the hour, I assume somewhere out there there will be novels from favorite writers that we've not heard about yet. I assume there'll be a new Dave Hutchinson novel out this year, and he's had an astonishing half decade or more. I assume there'll be a new Adam Roberts uh-huh. novel out, which will be welcome, uh-huh. as, as they always are. And, oh, I know what, book which will be coming along, and I'm genuinely looking forward to it, and I'm ashamed we didn't mention it earlier, uh-huh. And that is James Bradley's Ghost Species, which oh, is coming out in April, I think. And well, one of the things sounds uh, fascinating. And having read a couple of James Bradley's novels, including Clade, which was is still one of the best global warming novels, and it's still when I see these 
uh, articles in, in the New York Times or the Atlantic, all these mainstream articles about climate fiction or cli-fi, they seem to go back to the same four or five things and major novels like, like Clay don't get mentioned in it. But when you mentioned James Bradley and you mentioned, um, uh, for example, Dave Hutchinson, there are writers, and this is where you and I differ a little bit. Uh, you have to keep on top of new writers because you have to do the year's best. You have to know what's going on out there. I don't have to. I can pick out writers and say, I hope there's going to be something new by X, Y, and Z without knowing what it is. And when I start thinking of writers that I want to see the next thing by this writer, I don't care what it is, one of the names that comes to the top of my mind is Aliette de Bodard. I don't know if she has anything coming out this year. She might. Uh, it might be a surprise. But she's doing so many different interesting things in different interesting ways that I expect to be surprised by her. And it says – absolutely. And it says something about lists that, you know, it's like you you forget something for a moment and when it comes back to you, you're going, oh, my gosh, because a book that I'm desperately looking forward to – and, I mean, please, the fact that it's coming at the end of the hour should not make anybody listening think that I am not genuinely super eager to read this book – is Garth Nix's major, next major fantasy novel. He had a major book out in 2019, Angel Mage, which right. I enjoyed a great deal. But coming up is a book called The Left-Handed Booksellers of London. And that's Sounds coming out in great. October. And I'm really looking forward to that. Garth really has hit his straps in the last four or five years. And the books just seem to get better and better. Clariel and Golden Hand were terrific books. I really liked Angel Mage. And this new one, hint, hint, if you're listening, Garth, I'm really, really looking forward to it. So, yeah. <laughs> Hi, Garth. So, yes. Because I've not seen it yet, but I'm sure it must be finished. But, uh, finished. but uh, yeah, you know it will be good, and you know it will be competent, and and but you also sound as though you expect it to be a little surprising. Garth is always interesting and engaging, and takes things in a slightly different obje- a direction than you expect. Um, I adore the. Uh, the old kingdom novels that he's written, you know, that started off with Sabriel and have continued on. Mm. And I was super, very, very, very happy to hear that. In fact, he's just agreed to write another one. This one's going to come out next year. So in fact, he may even have finished it knowing Garth or be well progressed because he's not one to, to sort of just sit on his hands. What else around this? Um, you, I don't think you read CL Polk's winter, winter mark, which, won the or which, mark, which won the world fantasy but the sequel to that is due out any old day now uh, mm-hmm. a, a book called storm song there's a couple of books coming from tim powers including a novella called the properties of rooftop air looking forward to that oh and mm-hmm. because we forget things god benjamin rosenbaum has a space opera book called the unraveling coming out from liz grinsky's air one one of two books she's got coming out this year yeah, over the next had. 12. Because she's also doing the E. Lily U debut novel, which is coming out either late this year or early next. I'm not sure which quite we which absolutely yet. should have mentioned that, yeah. because But see, uh, it's not on the, on the official lists yet, but it's coming mm-hmm. from Air One. So The Unraveling from Air One by Benjamin Rosenbaum and the Lily U book. Definitely looking forward to those. Oh, well, and, 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 my, and my old mate, Bill Schaefer of Subterranean Press, him of the beautiful limited editions, uh, used to edit Subterranean Magazine, which is mm-hmm. sorely missed, and also occasionally writes, uh, edits anthologies and has a book coming out called Subterranean Tales of Dark Fantasy 3, 
The first two were very strong. Looking forward to that one. That's got to be enough. That's an hour, Gary. Okay, I've, I can I can put in one plug for one subterranean book I'm involved with, which I think is out late in the year, which is called Edited by edited by Ellen Datlow, which is not the best of Ellen Datlow, which he insists and she insists, but it's a collection of her stories from earlier anthologies. And I think what's important about that, and it's something you should keep in mind, and I've made this argument before, and I make it in the introduction to this book, anthologists are important. Anthologists are in some ways longer periods of time than magazine editors. And let me explain why. If you look at classic anthologists from – go back to Groff Conklin, who I mentioned earlier, to Terry Carr, to Judith Merrill, to Gardner Dozois, uh, to Ellen Dadlow, to yourself. These are books that stay in circulation. These are books that end up in libraries that, uh, that, that are physical objects that get passed around. A story in an anthology, I think, over time is likely to be read by more individual readers than a story in a single issue of a magazine. Maybe, maybe. Who knows? I do know, see, I've, I've, I've a tendency to argue with books, and I want to argue with edited by, not because Ellen Datlow mm-hmm. isn't a wonderful editor and not because she hasn't, inter- hasn't edited wonderful and important fiction, but because of the focus of this particular book. It's not the book I would have done, but I can see why you recommend it. Uh-huh. And there, there are things we can talk about after we're finished recording that no, no. probably will look, answer your look, question. The book, the book focuses, as I understand it, on the fiction that she selected for her print anthologies. Now, there's a yes. wealth of material. Over the years, she has edited some staggeringly good books. So, in that, from that perspective, it will be a terrific. I cannot believe it won't be a terrific book. I don't know that I haven't seen the table of contents, but it has to be. However. But it if it's it an overview include. of Ellen Datlow as an editor, it omits some of her most important editorial work. Absolutely. And that's what ma- what I quibble with, not having any of the work that she edited from Omni, which is some of the most influential, most important work that she ever did. The work that she did for Event Horizon, the work, to, the, the work that she did for Sci-Fi Monthly or whatever it was and so on. All those things. Those things are a huge omission which don't make the book not worthwhile, don't make the book not important, don't make the book not poor, good, but make me quibble because it makes it less of an accurate full portrait of Ellen as an editor. And this is one of the reasons, it it's the emission of this stuff, it. it's the emission of this stuff mm. that makes people forget over and over again that she's been an important science fiction editor as well as an important fantasy and horror editor. Oh, that's true. That's true. Oh. The argument from my point of view is that that means we need another book. Uh, could do. I would have just done a different book, but that's me. This is not me trying to talk you out of buying, uh, the book that Bill's done. It will be beautiful. <laughs> the stories will be great. Uh, you should definitely, but that, that could work. Anyway, we'll quibble another week, Gary, because this is an hour, pal. We're done. An that, that's it. And we have, yeah, maybe at some point, at some point you could, you could think about this and I could think about this, except I don't know what I'm looking forward to in terms of TV and, and media and that sort of thing, which we hardly ever talk about on this show. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to not having a Star Wars movie in 2020. I'm not. Who cares? You know, look, I didn't like the last one and everybody can, I mean, if everyone wants another one, they can have another one, but whatever. I will tell you that I had a, a, conver- a brief conversation with James Bradley of this podcast 
mm-hmm. uh, over about Lost in Space season two, which was on Netflix, which I enjoyed a great deal, and so did he. And there's a lot of other stuff, but anyway, that's for another time. We another will time, we will break now, having done two episodes in a row, and probably collapse in a heap, just fatigued from it all, and we'll have to look at coming back another time soon. Okay, and until next time, then this has been the Coods Street Podcast. Yes, indeed.